Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to our presentation this evening as we look at exciting things from a biblical point of view, but certainly disturbing things from a worldwide point of view. When we think about what has been going on in the world over the last little while, we've seen a change, uh, a rapid and drastic change, specifically in the Middle East and specifically in relation to the Ukraine. This is one of those squares, iconic Ukraine square. And of course, that was the way it was um, not too long ago. Um, but what was thought was impossible and uh, the horror of, of belonging really to a bygone age is now being seen across the world. And, you know, after World War II, it was thought that the age of war in Europe was a thing of the past. And then again, after the Cold War ended, it was thought that peace really reigned across the world. But nations like Ukraine, um, modern nations with all the convenience, you know, in many ways, a first world country are now seeing their iconic landscapes reduced, as it were, to rubble. And so this is the same picture, the same place uh, just uh, a few weeks ago. And it's not just those iconic landscapes. This is basically all those things that people deal with on a day to day basis, whether they be government buildings or shopping centers, normal life being turned into an inferno, um, residences where people live, apartment buildings uh, being absolutely decimated and uh, views really very similar to something that you might think would come right out of the Second World War after the bombing of Dresden or something along those lines. And you can even see like highways like this one here kind of looks a little bit like Brantford with its potholes. Um, but they are completely and absolutely obliterated and reduced to rubble. And people, instead of crossing bridges, are reduced to crossing on pieces of wood as they as they try to flee for their lives. Now, this is the state of affairs of things as they have come about. And, um, of course, we've seen Russia as it has encroached upon uh, the nation of Ukraine, a four-pronged invasion and lots of discussion about what's going to happen next. And most people didn't actually even think in the news media and even in world leaders that Russia would actually invade Ukraine. So we have to take all the predictions of a quick end to this war uh, and how people think it might go and what Putin's going to do with a bit of a grain of salt. Um, because nobody thought or very few people thought that he would actually um, engage in the first place. So while the world is shaking in its boots, worrying about what is coming upon it, we have the word of God, uh, the prophecies that are revealed in the Bible before us is something that we can put confidence in. And if you just turn over in your Bibles to First of Thessalonians chapter 5, we read there his prophecy about the, the, the latter days and, and what was going to be going on. Um, and there's comfort in the words that he gives for Bible believers. So in First Thessalonians chapter 5, we read there in um, the first few verses, he says, of the times or yourself, yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes, verse 2, as a thief in the night, right? So this is the situation. He comes as a thief in night, and that's the way for many people in the world. Nobody saw this coming, um, and it's, it's quite shocking. But he goes on to say that you, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. So we have the comfort of the scriptures and of prophecy that we don't need to be shocked by the things that are going on. Um, but rather, he goes on to say, you're the children of the light and the children of the day, not of the night, nor of the darkness. And so he goes on to say, therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. So this idea of the light of Bible prophecy shining as a light in the dark place, as Peter puts it, um, is there for us to help us understand what is going on in the world around us. Now, I'd just like you to turn, if you would, over to Habakkuk. Habakkuk's one of the minor prophets, and uh, in Habakkuk, he has some statements about prophecy. Because prophecy is one of those things that, you know, people say, oh, you know, people have been saying this forever. Um, it's been going on and on and on. And in fact, it even talks about in the New Testament, the Lord saying that, you know, people will say since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. But Habakkuk has this advice for us. He tells us quite plainly, this was the job of the prophet. In, in verse 2, Yahweh answered me and said, write the vision, make it plain upon the tables that he may run that readeth it. 
So God says to Habakkuk, I want you to make this clear. I want you to write it down and make it plain so that people can react to what is there. He that reads it can run. He can jump into action, so to speak. And he goes on to tell him, he says, the vision is yet for an appointed time, but the end it shall speak. It will not lie. Though it tarry, he says, wait for it because it will surely come. It will not tarry. So it's going to happen. And and although the years, you know, for years, it didn't look like Russia was up to a whole lot. If we go back and Christadelphians for almost 174 years have been saying that eventually Russia is going to take over Europe and they're going to come down into the Middle East and not just Christadelphians, but others. Um, But then, you know, it kind of looked like it wasn't really going to happen. But the point here is that it doesn't matter what it currently looks like. He says, wait for it. Though it tarry, uh, it will surely come. It, it will not tarry. So, so it's going to be something that we can put our confidence and our trust in. So I'd like you to turn, if you could, to Daniel chapter 2. So just back a few pages to Daniel chapter 2. This is the grand picture that we're given of the world empires as was seen by Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the dream that he had, and he saw these things as a terrible nightmare in the night. It's the grand structure of the kingdom of men, um, and we're given some idea what it is. So verse 31, Daniel says, O king, thou sawest, and behold, a great image, whose image was, uh, was and brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. So So this is a terrible nightmare that King Nebuchadnezzar saw. This image's head was of fine gold, his breasts and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron and his feet part of iron and part of clay. And thou sawest till that a stone was cut without hands, which smote the image and the clay upon the feet that were of iron and and, and clay and broke them to pieces. So this is the picture that we have, this terrible image Um, That's going to stand up. This is the kingdoms of men that would exist when the kingdom of God, um, as it was constituted under David and Solomon, would basically disappear. Now, he goes on to tell us the interpretation of this. It's not like we have to try and figure this out for ourselves. He says in verse 38, if we just look down over the page, he says, look, er, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, thou art this head of gold. After thee, another kingdom is going to arise, which is inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth, and then a fourth kingdom, which shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in peace and subdues all these things, and as the iron that breaks all these things, it shall break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, they're part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom is going to be divided. And eventually there's going to come this little stone that we read about in verse 43. Um, and it's going to actually it's, it's, it's the next verse, verse 44, that's going to smite the image on the feet and it's going to establish uh, the kingdom of God. But this last phase is this this iron that's mixed with clay. So it's the remnants of this last empire mixed with clay. Now, when we look at that and we consider how this all comes together, uh, we're given a starting place. Babylon, thou king art this head of gold. He was the king of Babylon. Another kingdom would come after him, which we know from history was the Medes and the Persians. Followed this would be the Greeks, the brazen-coated Greeks. And then finally, the iron uh, kingdom of Rome would come along. And this Roman period, of course, it was established by Julius Caesar bringing the Holy Land under a submission, um, but that empire would break apart and it would eventually go into two areas and then down into a whole bunch of little pieces. Um, and these would be mixed with iron or with iron and clay, which kind of represents Europe as it stands today. And we could add Russia into that as well. But we just want you to notice in verse 35 that we read that it's the iron the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold that are broken in pieces, and notice it there, together. So when the final conflagration takes place, when the stone smites the image on the feet, all of these elements are broken in pieces together. So Babylon that was started by Nebuchadnezzar, Medo-Persia, Persia today would be Iran, which was uh, started really by Cyrus the Great, 
Greece by Alexander the Great, Rome, you have, of course, Julius Caesar and others we would recognize. And then Europe today, all of these pieces, all of these elements are combined together when this great image is finally broken. Now, that same picture is given to us if we come over to Ezekiel chapter 38 as well. It's a similar prophecy about the kingdom of men in its last phase. So this is that toe phase or feet phase where you've got iron and clay, where there's going to be a great contest and it's going to come into into conflict with the Lord Jesus Christ. Ezekiel 38 basically describes for us the host of the latter day. He says, son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, and as the RSV puts it, the prince of Rosh, of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So there's your inner circle of nations. Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. Now, added to these are other nations. If we look down and see in verse 5 there, we have Persia, which is Iran, which is part of that image, Ethiopia and Libya with them, all of them with shield and helmet. And then with them, we have Gomer and all his bands, the house of Tagarmer, the north quarters, and all his bands and many people with thee. So all of these nations, if you look down there and we see in verse six, they're all assembled together. Verse five, six and seven, this great company that are assembled together in verse seven. And they are all confederates with this Gog at the land of Mago. Now, if you keep reading down there and we look at this in verse two and just kind of emphasize for a minute, this Gog at the land of Magog, who's the prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. Now, it would be an entirely different class to go through and look at who all these nations are. We're just going to pick on one. And that is this word Rosh. Right. So here we have Rosh which is the Greek word rus, as it's there in the Septuagint. So if you read the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's a proper name, he tells us. It means one who's lifted up or a chief. Um, and it's this word rus. Now, for years, Christadelphians have looked to the historians of yet last, you know, many, many years ago, in fact, to try and figure out who this is. So they start with Gesenius, let's say. So this is a, a Greek uh, Chaldee lexicon of the Old Testament. Um, so you do a little Bible study, you get out one of these lexicons or concordances, and they give you definitions of names and words in the Bible. So he has this to say about Strong's number 7200, which is this word Rosh or Rus. He says it's a proper name of a northern nation mentioned with Tubal and Meshach, and undoubtedly, he says, this is the Russians who are mentioned by Byzantine writers of the 10th century under the name of Rus, dwelling in the north of the Taurus. And he goes on to talk about some Arab writer who uh, identified them as dwelling on the river Volga. So there's Gesenius. So he's writing around 1833, 1834, when this book was published. We're going back a little bit in time, but we can go back to these Arabic writers that he talks about. There's this Charlie here. This one is one of my favorite guys. He invented algebra, so he's actually not my favorite. But here is uh, the guy that algebra was actually his name, and he was a mathematician, and he was also a, um, a geographer. And he's in that Abbasid uh, era. So we're talking about uh, the time, basically, this is in the area of Iraq, um, as we would have known it, um, the Abbasid dynasty. So he says that this Rus tribe are a tribe of Slavs. And he tells us about them coming in from the furthest parts down to the Black Sea. And then they reach the Caspian Sea and they take ships again. And they bring basically their wares by camel to Baghdad, um, where there are people who interpret for them and they pay taxes and so on. So this is uh, identifying this people of the Rus as the, the Slavic tribes from way up in the north. Now, it's not just him. We can go back to a historian, um, a guy named Nestor, who wrote a, a chronicle of something called the Kievian Rus. And so he writes about 1036, and he says basically the following, that Japheth lands, um, including the north side of the Black Sea, 
uh, the river Danube, Nistro, Nipra, Volga, which flows towards Shem's part of the sea. These contain numerous people, such as the Rus, he identifies here. And he says the Slavs and the Rus are one people, for it is because of the Vangarians or uh, of our Rangians um, that the latter became known as the Rus, who, though they originally were called Slavs. So again, so this is going back a ways, uh, a, a Russian chronicler. Um, and uh, so we go on to another one, a little bit more recent. This is 1651 um, in a geography is what the word phaleg uh, basically means there. And this is Bokart from 1651. And he tells us it's credible that from Russian Meshach, of whom Ezekiel speaks, descended the Russians and Muscovites. And he goes on to say that Rosh is the most ancient form under which history makes mention of the, of the name of Russia. So there are some historians, um, and we've used those for years and years. In fact, I have this little old insert I created when I was probably 19 years old, and I stuck in my Bible to help me remember who all these people were. Um, and at time to time, we get people who have challenged us on this and said, ah, oh, you can't really prove that. These are like way old historians. We need somebody a bit more modern. After all, we know so much more today than they did back then. Um, but, you know, this is kind of what they said. So we're going to go with that for now. This is a, a political map of Europe. And if we were to basically superimpose over top of it those different nations, you would see Rosh covering the area of Belarus down into Ukraine, Meshach, Tubal to the north, Domer, Mago, Tagarma. And then, of course, we've got the Romans and the Greeks, the Persians, the Babylonians, and, and the nations that are talked about in Ezekiel chapter 38. Now, if you were to take what... Um, Herodotus talks about, he says that basically um, that the, the Rus, or sorry, the, the, the Magog people live between the river Don and the river Danube, so they're called Scythians, and they're in this area here between those two rivers, um, and that's kind of how we know who these people are, going back to these ancient historians. But if you wanted something a little bit more contemporary, um, July 12th of this year, uh, just to help us out a little bit in identifying this, the president of Russia, a guy named Vladimir Putin, as you probably know, um, wrote this dissertation, a 40-some page dissertation, where he says, Russians, Ukrainians, and Belarusians are all descendants of the ancient Rus, which was the largest state in Europe, bound together by one language, which we now refer to as Old Russian, and after the baptism of a guy named Rus, they are also bound together by the Orthodox faith. So there you have it, right from the horse's mouth. This is the Kievian Rus, and if we were to superimpose that on our map, this covers the area of Ukraine, Belarus, and into Russia, and even parts of Romania as well. So that's what historians identify, um, and it's also what um, Putin says, we are the Rus. We are the Rosh, the Rus, and of course, when you read the Septuagint, that is the word there for this prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Well, for years, Christadelphians have been saying this, but then, of course, um, you know, in 1989, the whole Soviet Union had to kind of come collapsing down and the Cold War was over. This was when I think I was in grade 12 and uh, they were dancing on the wall. And that was the end of the Soviet Union as it was. It actually began in Afghanistan when they pulled out of there just before 1989 when Gorbachev was in power. He uh, yanked them out of Afghanistan. And then basically after that. Um, it didn't take long. The Berlin Wall fell and Western Europe, the Warsaw Pact countries kind of were freed from the Soviet yoke. And then you had the Soviet Union itself would end in 1991 on Christmas Day. And uh, that would be the end of that. Um, and then, of course, all the associate states would all fall away from Russia. And Russia was basically isolated for quite some time. So you would see a man named Boris Yeltsin come along, and for 10 years, Russia was kind of like a nobody, third world, world country sort of a state. And a lot of people said, hey, you Christadelphians, you're all crazy, you've got it wrong. Russia's never gonna amount to anything. They're never gonna attack anybody. They can't even feed people. And of course, the Bible has something to say about this as well. This is Ezekiel 38, if you're still there. Verse 4 says of this great confederacy, he's going to turn thee back, and then he's going to put hooks in his jaws and bring thee forth, and they're all going to come down with this great army. 
And um, reading that back in the 70s, 1971, actually, or 1970, at the height of the, the Gulf uh, or of the, uh, the Soviet Union, um, what he said is that we could reasonably expect a general large scale reorientation of strategic positions. And one of the results of that, of, of Russia basically collapsing to a degree and Britain and the U.S. would be reestablishing themselves in the Near East. And it would bring into, into being two great power blocks, a king of the north and a king of the south. And he says possibly during this time, um, Israel's relationship with the Arabs might be changing as well. Very interesting words as we consider what's been going on with the Abraham Accords in the last little while. But when we look at that, we saw Yeltsin come to power, um, but he lasted about 10 years and, and became somewhat of a drunk um, you know, it was kind of embarrassing for the Russians as he was singing at um, different, you know, international uh, meetings. And uh, he was obviously had one too many. So he resigned on December 31st, 1999. And then by May, Putin became president. And he, of course, was this nobody that anybody had ever heard about. He was this old KGB or what they used to call the FSB agent who took over from Yeltsin. And, and the problem was when he took over, he actually didn't have a political party. So they quickly made one up and they voted him to be the head of it. And then they had an election and he became prime minister uh, or president of Russia at that point in time. So when he came to power, one of the things that really um, he hammered on right from the very beginning. So this is 2005. He says, above all, we should acknowledge that the collapse of the Soviet Union was a major geopolitical disaster of the century. As for the Russian nation, it became a genuine drama. Tens of millions of our co-citizens and co-patriots found themselves outside Russian territory. And Russia basically, he says, more or less disintegrated itself and, and uh, it was infected by this. So this was his point back in five years into power. The problem, he says, is there's all those Russians that are outside of Russian territory. And it's amazing to see basically exactly how that has played out. So when he came to power, it was Soviet uh, communist atheism, and he quickly changed that. He resurrected state religion. In fact, when he became president, he went and had mass with the patriarch, the Russian patriarch, and does that every time he's elected. Um, and then he quickly uh, has been meeting with each of the popes to restore um, communication with the Vatican. And interestingly, some of the news media have picked up on this. They've said, well, well, as the Pope has kind of said, it's too bad what's going in Ukraine, and we're sorry for, you know, the, the discomfort of the people there. They've not come out and said that what Russia is doing is wrong. Um, there's been no words that affect as of yet. So, but that's what he's been doing. He's been trying to pull these things together, and he's been bringing the Eastern and the Western uh, churches together, the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic, and facilitating this and encouraging them to work together. But over the 20 years, he's also been working to bring back the nations that had formerly been part of the USSR, at least bringing them back under Russian influence. You have Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan. Uh, we've had Iran, Iraq. He's in Syria now. And very recently, of course, Afghanistan. These were all under the Soviet influence and they've all been now kind of restored to being sort of client states of Russia once again. And so this is the underbelly of Russia. But there's also been um, this concept of pushing into those other former Russian speaking peoples uh, that are now outside of the Soviet or of the Russian uh, sphere of influence. So what he's really been doing in the last 20 years is assembling this image empire, being pulling all these pieces back together again. Now, I'd like you to go back to Habakkuk, if you would. In Habakkuk chapter 2, there's a rather fascinating little passage in Habakkuk chapter 2. So this is verse 5. He's talking about this king. And he says um, he transgresses by wine. He's a proud man. He doesn't keep at home. He can't stay home. Who enlarges his desire as hell and, and is as death and cannot be satisfied. So this guy has a, has a thirst for, for blood and guts. Now notice here he gathers unto him all nations and heaps to him all peoples. And so they take up a proverb against this, this, this king and say, woe to him that increaseth and that which is not his. How long? And to him that ladeth himself with thick clay. 
Now, that's a very interesting little phrase there. Somebody that increases that which is not his, which, of course, is exactly what Putin's been doing in Crimea and in Ukraine, is taking what is not his. But notice this expression. He ladeth himself with thick clay. So for 145 years, for 144 years, Christadelphian Bible students have been pondering these prophecies, writing about them at a time when a Russian ruler would begin fusing together the nations of the iron remnants of Europe. And it goes on to say he has spoiled many nations. So that language that's put there is a language of a nation that is empire building. It's pulling all nations close to itself. Now, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 38, just back a few pages, where we were, notice the wording here. He's told in verse 7, Be thou prepared, prepare for thyself, thou and all the company that is assembled to thee, and be thou a guard unto them. So the word prepared is this idea, basically, of to set up or to stand up to establish something, but it, and to appoint somebody as a king, to aim or direct as a weapon, to apply the mind to something, to make ready or to prepare. That's the, the uh, definition coming from Gesenius. Now, that's very interesting when you look at the last 20 years, what Russia has been doing under Putin is it's been making preparations um, one of the things it's been doing in the last little while is dumping American dollars. So they used to have a lot of American dollars in their in their currency reserves. They've been selling them off as fast as they can and replacing them with uh, gold so that they're no longer reliant on America and trying to sever those ties. And this has been a long term project. And we'll look at some of the other things they've been doing as well. But notice here he says, be thou a guard unto them. So the word there, guard, is Mashiach, um, which can mean basically a guard, somebody who's uh, in custody or a guard with custody over somebody, like somebody in a prison um, or a watch, uh, something that is guarded or reserved um, or observed. Uh, and it's used of Joseph when he's in a place of confinement in Genesis 40, verse 3. And it's also used in Nehemiah 4, verse 22, to protect, to guard or to have ward over something. So it's interesting that we see both of those applications with Russia. So we look at nations like Iran, and it's constantly protecting Iran and guarding it from any sanctions of the U.S. or whatever it might be. Um, they're doing the same thing with Syria and some of their other client states, as they like to call them. But the other word there is to bring somebody into custody or into prison to guard them or observe them. Now, that's more the kind of thing that we've been seeing in the European arena. So when we look at Russia and we look at this for 174 years, Christadelphians and Bible students have been writing about this. So this is a guy named John Thomas back in 1848, and he was contemplating these prophecies and had the following to say, even though at the time it really didn't look like it was going to amount to much. He says, it is therefore the mission of the autocrat, which is the dictator of Russia, to form the feet and set up the image before the world in all its excellent brightness and the terribleness of form that all men subject to the kingdom of Babylon may worship the power of its creator or worship the, uh, the um, work of its creator's power. So what he's saying here is that Russia, Ezekiel chapter 38, its job is to gather all those nations together and form the feet. So it's the clay that's going to weld together all those disparate parts of the old Roman Empire that were all broken up. The iron that was broken up, it's going to now form almost like a cast around them and it's going to pull them all back together. In. That's what he says is going to happen because that's what Ezekiel talks about and Daniel these things are broken in pieces together now he also wrote another little booklet called Anatolia and um, it originally was in the back of Eureka um, another booklet that he wrote and the title of this is very interesting is 1868 it's called Anatolia Russia triumphant in Europe chained now, we now know it today as a booklet called The Exposition of Daniel. It's available um, from most of our bookstores. Um, 
So in this little booklet, this is what he had to say. So, again, quite fascinating as we look at what this this whole little thing's. Oh, I've gone a little bit too far, a little bit too far, a little bit too fast. Hold on one second here. We'll just back up the truck. There we go. So here he is. And this was his comment on um, on this. He says there or Europe's leaders are wrong in supposing that the age of conquest is past forever and that they will succeed in establishing the freedom of and independence in Europe. So this is going back to his day, 1868. He says, if, if you think that Europe is going to be a peaceful zone, he says, Bible prophecy would tell us something completely different. He says, there has never been such an age of conquest as that which will soon open upon the world. And as to the establishment of European freedom and independence, the war to be initiated is the setting in of an overwhelming inundation that will submerge them under one of the most terrible and scorching despotisms that has wrung the heart of nations. So that's what is going on right now in Europe, is this this change that has been taking place. And of course, it began, as we saw in 2014, with the little green men that started showing up, as they were called, in the Crimea. Uh, that's the little area in the Black Sea, just off of the Ukraine. And, of course, they showed up without insignia, and they were called little green men. But, of course, it came very clear that they were actually Russian soldiers. And it didn't take long before they annexed the Crimea after uh, short battles and whatever else. March the 18th, they signed an agreement after a hastily called referendum where the Crimean citizens voted to become part of Russia. And so that was 2014. And at the time, there was many, um, you know, little, uh, this was the Los Angeles Times. Uh, the Russian bear, of course, I've been hibernating. I'm hungry. I've been hibernating since 1991. So this was the idea. It was going to take on Ukraine. Um, now, it didn't go very far at that point in time. They took the Crimea. And then some of what was Donbass and the Luhansk regions were, were kind of under their auspices. But that's kind of where it stopped. And so um, that was added to their little uh, reclaimed lands, I guess you could say, looking back to what was um, the Soviet Union of, of the latter day. But part of this preparation has not all been military. There's also been another part of it, which has been gas. So there has been Russia's gas attack on Europe. And uh, this was a publication from 2014, uh, which basically is called Putin's Grand Strategy, the European Union and its uh, discontents. Right. So this is uh, basically written in 2014. And it says over the past decade, if not since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Russian government has deployed a wide array of tactics and instruments in its effort to restore a sphere of influence over the former Soviet space, right? So that's what they've been trying to do. The large scale of German-Russian trade has meant that German foreign policy has often been hostage to Russian interests. Russia's withholding of energy has been an important tactical tool in the Ukrainian conflict. And that's of 2014. Well, of course, as you look at that, we've seen how this has grown. Uh, Russia's been building gas lines into Europe since 1967. The Brotherhood line was first put in. Then the Transgrass in the 70s, the Soyuz in 75, the Transbalkan in 86, and the Yamal line in 1992, which ran through Belarus and Poland and into Ukraine. But you'll notice that most of these gas lines all touch the area of Ukraine. So Ukraine made a lot of money off Russia of shipping gas through their area. Um, and so when they started having problems, uh, when they took over the area of Crimea, um, they started basically figuring out ways of, you know, getting around this. So they, they bypassed the uh, Trans-Balkan line by building the Blue Stream line straight into Turkey in around 2005 to 2009. Um, and then the Nord Stream line, which basically was about 2010 to 2012, which would bypass Yamal, Brotherhood and Soyuz that flow through Poland and Ukraine. And then there was the Turk Stream that was added again going into Bulgaria uh, or the, the northern part of Turkey. And then the area basically that they've been talking about is this Nord Stream 2, which would mean that we wouldn't need to run gas through uh, Poland or Ukraine at all.
So that's been the plan, has been to bypass anything going through the Ukraine so that they could control all of the gas to Europe. Why does that matter? Well, the problem is in Europe, they don't have hydroelectric dams like we have here. They just started closing all their nuclear facilities because of, um, you know, the, uh, the environmental concerns. So the bulk of their electricity is generated by gas fired power plants. That's where their electricity comes from. So if there's no gas, it's not just about heating. It's about no power for industry. We can't run the BMW and the Mercedes factories in Germany because there's no power to run them. So they've been using solar and wind power. This last year was the, the worst year for wind power in 70 years. So it's really created a problem of a lack of gas in reserves in Europe, so they can't generate electricity. So they've been held hostage somewhat to Russia with their gas purchases, which has highly impacted the European response to what's going on in the Ukraine right now. Now, if we were just to superimpose our Ezekiel 38 map over top of this, that whole area of Magog, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, that's the area where the bulk of those gas lines run. And that's the area that they've been seeking to control through these things. So what's interesting is after 2014, uh, they didn't learn a whole lot from the, the um, Ukrainian crisis. He said, this is Bloomberg, October 22nd of last year. Outside supplies account for about 80% of gas uh, the, European, the European Union consumes. Most of it comes from Russia, but also Norway and Algeria. Germany exports 90% of its needs, or imports, sorry, 90% of its needs. So it has hardly any natural gas of its own uh, coming. So that's one of the problems. So what's happened is, as they've been attacking Ukraine, they've talked about sanctions, and they've tried to kind of leave the gas out of it as much as possible. America said, yeah, we're not going to buy Russian gas, which is like, why are they buying Russian gas anyway? But, you know, we have, you know, the oil and gas fields in Canada, they've got them in their own country, but it's kind of a bizarre thing. But Europe is kind of like, well, what are we going to do? Um, there's liquid natural gas, which can come from other countries, but it's not really enough. And so Putin, this last week, basically says on March 23rd, I've decided to implement a set of measures to transfer payment for our gas supplies to unfriendly countries into Russian euros, or rubles. So what's happened is, um, as they've had this dispute, they've cut off foreign currency to Russia. And so Russia says, OK, well, if you want to buy gas, you now have to buy it in rubles. And Europe is just in a right tizzy. And the G7 has said, oh, we're not going to do that. And so, you know, we kind of wait and see what exactly is going to take place. So they asked um, this Charlie here, um, Dmitry Peskov, um, what was going to happen if uh, European customers rejected to pay for uh, the, uh, the gas in rubles? And he says, well, we're clearly not going to supply the gas for free. Uh, in our situation, he says, it's hardly possible and feasible to engage in charity for Europe. So he said, like, it's just not going to happen. Um, so there's big discussion right now on, on how they're going to handle this. And, of course, it's another way in which they are holding these things down. But the Bible is very clear about how these things take place. If you come over to Joel chapter 3. So in Joel, Joel chapter 3, we have here um, a prophecy about the latter days. So we look there in verse 2, uh, 1, in those days and in that time, when I bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, he says, I'm going to gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. So this is the time period of Armageddon. Sorry, it's Joel chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. He's going to gather all nations, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and he's going to plead with them there over Israel. Right. So this is the time period. Ezekiel 38, Daniel chapter 11, Revelation 16. They're all parallel prophecies. Joel chapter 14. But this is what he says over in verse nine. He says, proclaim ye this among the Gentiles. Prepare war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. So this is a change that is taking place. There has been a period 
where there hasn't been war for quite a period of time. And so the word there, prepare, is the word kadesh, which basically is a, um, a form of a verb, and it means to set apart or to make sacred or to consecrate, to observe as holy, to keep sacred or to honor or hallow something. So this is the idea of a holy war um, that is going to be coming. But he also says to wake up the mighty men. So the word there literally means to rouse, to stir up, to act in an aroused manner, to awake. And what are they doing? Well, they're going to wake them up. And he says, beat your plowshares and chairs into swords and your pruning hooks into spears and let the weak say, I am strong. So we're going to go from a demilitarized sort of existence into a militarized existence. And what is fascinating is what has happened in Europe in just the last month is that all these nations that have been like, you know, we don't really want to have an army. We're not going to spend our money on troops. And Trump got all mad at them over NATO and said, look, you guys need to put more into your own defense. Why should we pay for, you know, keeping you guys all safe? Um, and they kind of went back, you know. And now, of course, maybe uh, things are changing. This is a booklet that was put out March 15th, and it's actually by a liberal lefty group. It's the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. We're not talking a bunch of warmongers. We're talking the people that are on the left, right? So it's Ukraine, a wake-up call for the defense, the West on defense. So I, I thought it was fascinating. That's the name of the publication published just a couple of weeks ago. A wake-up call is what's going on. And so when we read this, it says that when Vladimir Putin became president of Russia in 2000, uh, the depleted armed forces that he inherited were a shadow of those at the disposal of the Soviet-era era predecessors. The collapse of the Soviet Union and the economic depression that had plagued the Russian Federation in the decade that followed had stunted the development of its newly formed independent military. But he says two decades on and the contrast could hardly be starker. During his annual press conference at the end of 2020, Putin proudly declared that the situation has changed. Russia has one of the most efficient armies in the world. This was no exaggeration. Better drilled, technologically advanced and strategically capable, the Russian military machine had been modernized under Russia's uh, command. So interesting, you know, and, and we, we hear a lot in the news about, you know, how terrible they are. Um, but I just want you to think about this for a moment. This is this this two weeks ago. This was published and they say today Russia has the world's largest inventory of land forces, including tanks, armored vehicles, artillery, rocket projectors, more military aircraft than China and more naval vessels, believe it or not, than the United States. Indeed, one of the ways in which the West has fallen asleep, notice the phrasing here, is through the lack of an overreaching or overarching defense strategy, as well as coordination uh, among allies in our hemisphere and the Indo-Pacific region. He goes on to say the West also needs to understand that its goals, what its goals are and what lengths it is willing to go to achieve them, specifically the lack of political will in the Western democracies to defend our values abroad has opened a power vacuum in areas of the world that Russia and to some extent China have sought to fill. Now, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, how the Ukrainians are just, you know, hammering the Russians and it's really going badly for them. This is the narrative that we in the West get from our media. Right. Well, Vladimir or not Vladimir, it's Vladimir uh, Zelensky uh, gave an interview to The Economist just the other day. And he said, yeah, we're taking them out. But he says they have the biggest army in the world and it's just tank after tank after tank. And we're running out of missiles. And he says, in fact, there's so many tanks, there's tank traffic jams in some of our cities. That's what our army is seeing, because they just keep on coming and keep on coming. And so when you look at this, um, the same article goes on to say, well, the French spending has increased by 15 percent. So this is this wake up call. The UK by 20, Germany by 22 and the US by 61. China, of course, has gone nuts and they've got 495 percent increase. Russia has a 183% increase of spending since 2000. So between 2010 and 2020, the increase in Russian defense spending was 43% higher than the equivalent for the Western European countries combined. 
So it's basically a huge rearmament program that they've been going on with. And that's the situation. And it's not just a bunch of eggheads that are saying this. This is a retired Navy Admiral Lord Baron West of Spithead, who basically turned around and said the Ukraine crisis should serve as a wake-up call to politicians and opinion formers in the West. This is the, the real uh, thing that we face. So you think of Joel's words, wake up the mighty men and rearm, turn your swords or your plowshares into swords and your spears into pruning the reverse, pruning hooks into spears, right? That's what's supposed to be taking place. So you take a quick gander at the news. This was just uh, the other day, March 19th. A big defense budget shows Germany has woken up, which is exactly what Joel says. Nations, it's time to wake up. The same is true of France, increasing defense spending in response to the Russian invasion. It's true of Poland, and it's true of uh, Sweden, of all places, IKEA's home. Um, it's true in Latvia. Uh, they're also increasing their spending and Romania. And of course, there's a call once again to reintroduce a free Europe. The title says needs an army. So they're talking about creating an army in Europe because America has just not been able to defend it. They, they cite the issue in, in Afghanistan and the American pull out there, but also the situation in Ukraine. And even Canada has gone so far as to say, look, we also need to defend ourselves and we need to buckle up for defense spending splurges that are going to be taking place because we actually share a border with Russia. We don't often think about it, but it's the Arctic. You know, if you go over the other side, there's Russia and Russian subs have been going underneath the Arctic ice packs and putting little flags down saying, hey, this is ours. Um, and they've reoccupied all of their former Soviet bases and um, airs, mm, not so much. But so even Canada is recognizing its need to rearm and to, to do this. Now, come over to Daniel in chapter 12, because the time period that we're looking at, this time of the end. So we know we're in the time of the end in Daniel chapter 11. And we've not spent a lot of time looking at this um, in verse 40. At the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him in Daniel chapter 11, verse 40. And the king of north is going to come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and horses and many ships. And he will enter into the countries and overflow and pass over. So there we have a description of the king of the north coming with, of all things, many ships. That's why the Crimea was so important. That's why Sevastopol was so important. And as that news article just showed us, they have more warships than any other nation. So it's, it's quite a fascinating thing here when you look at what Daniel has to say. But in Daniel chapter 12, it goes on to say in verse 1 that at the same time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth to the children of thy people. And that's talking about the resurrection, which comes up later on in verses 2 and 3. But he describes a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation to the same time. And at that time, thy people, which will be Israel, Daniel's people, will be delivered. And, of course, everyone that shall be found written in the book. So this is a period here of trouble that's coming on the world such as never as has been seen. Of course, you read that in the previous verses when the, the Gogian, the northern confederacy, the king of the north comes down and he invades uh, the Middle East and goes right down into Egypt and returns to Jerusalem and plants the tabernacle as his palace between the seas, the glorious holy man. A terrible time that is coming upon the world. But, you know. Our writer John Thomas years ago in Elpis, Israel, had this to say. The future movements of Russia are notable signs of the times because they are predicted in the scriptures of truth. So he said we should be looking at Russia and seeing what's going on. The Russian autocracy in its plenitude on the verge of dissolution. So autocracy, again, is dictatorship, right, which is kind of what you see right now, is the image of Nebuchadnezzar standing upon the mountains of Israel, ready to be smitten by the stone. So he says the dictator of Russia, when it grows and, and basically sets itself up, that is the image that we read of in Daniel chapter two. And then he warns us when Russia makes its grand move for the building up of its image empire, let the reader know that the end of all things at present constituted is at hand. So this is writing 174 years ago. He says, look, when you see this begin to happen, just know this is it. We are in the end game.
And in fact, that idea of a nation, a power, a dictator that's going to come is also found in Isaiah chapter 14. So if you just turn over to Isaiah 14, this is describing the latter-day Assyrian. These are words that were applicable to the king of Babylon as well. Um, but we see the character. Remember, Babylon's the head of gold. This is all the same character, the kingdom of men. And here it is in Isaiah 14, in verse 6, it talks about this guy who smote the people in wrath with a continual smoke, a stroke. He that ruled nations in anger is persecuted and none hinders. So it's going to come back on him. But this is what he did. <coughs> he smote people in wrath and he ruled nations in anger. What do we see going on in Ukraine right now? It's hideous. You know, schools, maternity wards, hospitals, apartment blocks are being just smitten with a continual stroke. And the world over, people are just standing there agog at what's going on. They can't understand how this is taking place in our modern civilized world. Well, the Bible says, look, this is the character of the guy. You've said in your heart, I will ascend into the heavens. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Now, those are words that are picked up in Thessalonians of the man of sin. And we're not going to look at those right now. But that's the character. And in Ezekiel chapter 38, we see this similar idea that this guy has this thought in his heart, I'm going to ascend to the top, I'm going to sit in Jerusalem. And you see here in Ezekiel 38, in verse 10, at the same time, things will come into your mind and you're going to think an evil thought. So that's the same idea here. And he's going to say, I'm going to go up to the land of unwalled villages and to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to do what? Well, he's coming to take a spoil and a prey and to turn his hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited and upon these people that have been gathered out of the nations. Now, when you look at that and you think about what's going on right now, well, we're going to put sanctions on Russia. Well, there's two ways of getting out of sanctions. One is through negotiations and cap in hand, and I'm super sorry, I won't do it again. Can we restore all of our you know, economic ties? That's the one way of doing it. Now, that wasn't Alexander's way of doing it. That wasn't Cyrus's way of doing it. That was not Julius Caesar's way of doing it. Emperors don't do it that way. They just go conquering and they take what they want to take and they do it by force. And that's the kind of character we see here. So the sanctions are probably going to create more of a desire in Russia to go and take more. And that's kind of the idea that we have here, that they are coming upon this to take a spoil and a prey. Now, when you look at this and you consider what uh, John Thomas said all those years ago, and again, he didn't have the Holy Spirit, some special vision. He was just reading the Bible and going, well, this is what Ezekiel says. This is what Daniel says. Well, then that's what's going to happen. And so he says in page 420, having fulfilled the mission of his sacred Russia to put down rebellion amongst his own people. And we've seen him carting away all kinds of people to Siberia that will stand against him to plant the Greek cross on the dome of St. Sophia. Another story altogether. Um, and to prostrate Europe at his feet which is what he's begun, he will next address himself with the work of establishing his dominion over the East. So this is the whole idea is that, first of all, he needs to take Europe. He needs to bring that under his control and power because Ezekiel 38 says those nations of Europe are with him. They come with him. Their armies come with him down into the land. Now, when Alexander the Great went and conquered people, he gave them a choice. I can kill you all or you can join me. And, you know, you can be part of the army. Cyrus did the same thing. And so this is what looks like is going to take place in the near future in Russia. Now, you know, Putin is very interesting because this is what it says um, in uh, uh, March 17th of this year. He says any people and even more so the people of Russia will always be able to distinguish true patriot from scum and traitors and simply spit them out like a gnat that accidentally flew into their mouths, spit them out on the pavement. I am convinced that such a natural and necessary self-purification of society will only strengthen our country. Now, that's what he says of his own people. We're going to spit out anybody 
that doesn't agree with me like you spit a fly out of your mouth, and this is going to be a natural self-purification. Now, that sounds awfully like Adolf Hitler and other people like him that have gone before And so he went and did this great big rally March 18th, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it was uh, a, a, a stadium that was just packed full. It, it's supposed to hold about 81,000 people. They figured there was about 200,000 people at the rally, both here and outside with big jumbotrons. And um, it was the eighth anniversary of the annexation of Crimea. Now, there's, of course, some discussion about whether some people were forced to go um, to this whole thing. But you can see that this is his power that he has over the people. And there was a, a singer that they had who sang a song at the beginning. And um, this was very interesting because basically he says, I was born, the song is called um, Born in the Soviet Union, Made in the USSR. And the refrain goes, Ukraine, Crimea, Belarus, Moldova, Moldova that's my country. Kazakhstan, the Caucasus, the Baltic states, too. And he claims like the Ruriks, the Romanovs, Lenin, Stalin, those are all the heroes of my country. You know, so this is the mindset of these kinds of people. Now, when you look at that, Ukraine, Crimea, we've got Crimea. He's working on Ukraine. Belarus is with him. And then you've got Moldova, which is the next one over, that doesn't happen to be a member of Europe the EU or of NATO for that matter. So, you know, the NATO clause wouldn't apply to it either. Um, so it's very interesting, you know, where he might be headed next. But he gets up and he gives this great long speech. Um, well, actually it wasn't that long, it's a couple of minutes long, but just as a little piece out of it. You talk about holy war. Remember he said sanctify war in, uh, in Joel. The main goal and motive of the military operation, said Putin, that we launched in Donbass in Ukraine, is to relieve these people of suffering and of genocide. At this point, I recall the words from the Holy Scripture. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends, and we are seeing how heroically our military are fighting during this occupation. These words come from the Holy Scriptures of Christianity, from what is cherished by those who profess this religion. The bottom line is that this is a universal value for all the nations and those of all religions in Russia and primarily for our people. So you can see this man is driven by a religious vision. And that vision is to unite the Orthodox faith under its head. And so that's what he's been up to. Um, this is him with the patriarch. Um, interesting little shadow of the cross on his forehead. But patriarch um, Kirill is basically uh, had some comments to, to make on this and talked about Putin's larger spiritual vision of returning to a Russian empire in which the Orthodox religion plays a pivotal role. Putin has been putting forward this concept of the so-called Russian world. And that concept is grounded in Russian or, uh, orthodoxy. So what does it mean? Well, the Russian world is wherever the Russian speakers are. The Russian world is wherever the Russian is, there is a Russian church. And it does not acknowledge existing political borders. So interesting. We were in Jerusalem a couple of years ago. Bottom of the Mount of Olives, great big Russian church with golden domes. There's over a million Russian speaking people in Israel, because they all migrated from the Soviet Union when they were allowed to leave after 1989. Think of people like Natan Sharansky and others. So this is the vision of this man. So it's not just going to stop at Europe, but those nations of Europe, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, those will all be gathered under his control. And then he'll be headed down to um, the Middle East. So the question is, well, You know, what happens next? Is Putin the guy? Well, we don't know that. And like everything, everything plays out according to the timeline the father has, not necessarily what we would like to see. Just remember, though, if you go back to World War II, it didn't all happen overnight, right? So in 1938, there was union with uh, Anschluss with Austria. That was in March. And then in uh, October, there were Russian troops, or sorry, German troops going into the Sudan land. Um, and then in uh, 1939, March, a year later from the first Anschluss, Germany invaded Czechoslovakia. And then in September, they invaded Poland. And it wasn't until the following April that they then invaded Denmark and Norway um, in uh, 1940. 
1940, and then Dunkirk happened, and then we saw Germany invading France, Belgium, and Luxembourg, and France surrendered by 1941, and then they attacked the USSR, which was kind of their undoing. And actually, interestingly, in 1941, they arrived in Kiev, and that square was actually renamed Adolf Hitler Square for quite some period of time. And, and uh, that's kind of Germany's vision of a new Europe, as it is Das New Europa under Adolf Hitler. That took some time to do. It's not just a three-week campaign. It was a whole thing that's been going on. So if we flip that around and say, well, what about uh, Russia? Well, Russia aggression has been going on since 91. Russia supported Abkhazia, obtaining independence from Europe. And then in 92, Transnistria, which is Moldova, the border of Moldova, they got gained independence. And then along came Vladimir Putin, and they regained control of Chechnya between 99 and 2009. And then 2008, there was the war with Abkhazia and South Ossetia, while actually Medvedev was uh, prime minister or premier, president, and uh, uh, Putin became premier. And then in 19, or 2014, you had Crimea. Um, and then there was the uh, proclamation of Donetsk and Luhansk uh, having their independence, which was recognized in 2022. And of course, that led to the invasion of Ukraine. So it's over a period of time. But we don't know the exact what happens next. We don't know, you know, the course of things that might take place. There may be a pause in the advancement of Russia. That is possible, right? The Western media is certainly pushing this narrative um, and, and thinking, you know, that they can manipulate the world. Um, that's what they try to do is tell you this is what's happening, whether it's happening or not, so that the people there will say, well, if that's what's happening, well, I guess we'll just give up and go home. That may or may not um, work. I mean, Russia has never danced to the media's tune. Uh, they've kind of done their own thing. Russia might regroup before the next push. That's entirely possible as well. Uh, Hitler certainly did that in the Second World War. Sanction and isolations may prove a motivator for it to extend itself even further um, if it can't find its way out of this. And it may use its control over the gas and oil to push its agenda in bringing Europe to heel. One of the things that uh, he would really like to see is, of course, NATO collapsing. So if it's tested, perhaps it may just not come to the table and that might be what they want to see. So when we look at this and we see where we are uh, back in Daniel chapter 11, one of the little phrases there that comes up in verse or chapter four, four, 11, verse 41, he shall enter also into the glorious land and many countries are going to be overthrown. Right. So many countries are going to be overthrown. And the idea there basically is to stumble, stagger, to sink, to be brought to ruin or to be made weak. And obviously that's talking about the invasion in, you know, going south. But before he can go south, he also has to put his net over Europe to bring them with him. And in fact, in Nehemiah, this verse is used, the strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed. So the will to fight, the will to actually resist is gone. And he does this. And that's one of the things we're told in verse 41 of uh, Daniel. And so when we look at this, we read that section about the future movements of Russia being notable signs of the times, right? The Russian autocracy and its plenitude on the verge of dissolution is the image of Nebuchadnezzar standing on the mountains of Israel, ready to be smitten by the stone. When Russia makes its grand move for the building up of its image empire, then let the reader know that the end of all things at present constituted is at hand. That's the key. But the takeaway isn't, oh, cool. Look at the signs of the times and look at the fact that this guy may have been right and other people have been right. It's what he says next that's the most important. The long expected but stealthy advent of the king of Israel will be on the eve of becoming a fact and salvation will be to those who not only look for it, but have trimmed their lamps by believing the gospel of the kingdom unto the obedience of faith and the perfection thereof in fruits meet for repentance. So what this has to drive us to is to examine ourselves and say, this is the beginning of the end. It might take a few months, a few years. We don't know exactly, but what we do know is the process has begun. 
There has been 30 years of Russia kind of being derelict and behind the times, not being aggressive as we've seen it in the past. Now we see what everybody, nobody thought would happen. They actually invaded Ukraine. I mean, people were talking on the news up until the night it happened. Oh, he's never actually going to do it. This is all a big ruse. All he's doing is, is, you know, calling their bluff and so on. And then he did it. And everybody was like totally shocked. The Bible talks about him bringing Europe under its control or under his control. And that's what we can expect to see over the next little while. Now, after that, he goes down into the Middle East. But these events are telling us that everything that's written in our Bibles, the prophecy that's in here is true. And the Lord Jesus Christ, just as he promised, you know, or as the angel said, the the Lord Jesus, who has gone up into heaven, so shall so return in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. That is going to be a fact. And so what do we do about it? Well, the words of Peter come to mind in 2 Peter 3, verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. Society around us as we know it is going to be dissolved. What kind of persons ought you to be? And that word dissolve literally means to melt away. So as you see that little ice cube, it seems so solid and so secure, but it's going to just melt away. Melt away. What kind of people should we be? We should be looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of the Lord, as he goes on to say. Because what we do know is the rest of the story. The rest of the story is given to us in Daniel chapter 2. Thou sawest, verse 34, till that a stone was cut without hands, and it smote the image upon his feet. And the iron, the clay, and break them to and break them in pieces together. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and gold broken in pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away, and no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That is what we look forward to. There's a tragedy going on in Ukraine right now, and it's going to spread eventually across Europe. But what we can do is prepare for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as it goes on to say in verse 34, in the days of these kings, so that the clay iron feet that are being melded together, and we can see that happening right right now, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it is going to stand forever. And may we, friends, brothers and sisters, young people, may we prepare ourselves for that day because it soon is going to be upon us. We need to look at our lives, examine ourselves and say, what is standing between me and entrance into the kingdom of God? If there are changes that I need to make in my life, I need to make them now. If I'm thinking about baptism and, you know, am I going to do this or not? We need to decide this is for me. Because the Lord has spoken these things for hundreds of years. People have been saying it. And now it's coming to pass right in front of our very eyes. So we leave you with those thoughts. And then our prayer is, of course, that those days will be shortened for the elect's sake.